It's so good to have you in Parkside Green's Bible Study. Welcome back. Uh, Pastor Steve here, focusing this week on true and false religion. And that has been a matter of high human concern for centuries. I mean, back in the 16th century, the Protestant reformer Ulrich Zwingli wrote a 400-plus page commentary on true and false religion. And not to be outdone, the 17th century English theologian John Owen wrote a 550-plus page volume on true and false religion. Uh, these days, it seems more popular to affirm that uh, all religions are true in their own ways, but it is still a matter, even today, of high human concern. How do we distinguish true religion from false religion? Well, this week we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about true and false religion in Luke 20, verse 27, through chapter 21, verse 4, which we will explore under four headings. Number one, silencing Sadducees in verses 27 to 40. Secondly, Davidic dilemma under verses 41 to 44. Thirdly, spiritual show-offs in verses 45 to 47. And fourth and finally, selfless sacrifice in chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. You'll remember that when we left off last week that the spies that were sent by the Jewish leaders marveled at Jesus' words and they became silent. And this week, we're going to have a little bit of a continuation of that theme with Jesus silencing Sadducees. Now, for context, Jesus is still in the temple teaching when there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Sadducees believed that people's souls died with their bodies. They thought people's souls died with their bodies, that there was no resurrection. And Acts 23.8 reinforces this. It tells us that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. It's a big difference between them, and a, a clever way that seminary students remember the difference between these two groups is that the ones who don't believe in the resurrection are sad, you see. At any rate, the Sadducees here try to trip Jesus up with a trick question that reflects their beliefs. Uh, the group starts by observing that back in Deuteronomy 25, Moses said that if a married man dies, but he hasn't had any children, that the deceased man's brother should take the widow as his wife. And then they're supposed to name the firstborn son to the widow after her first husband who had died so that his name is not blotted out in Israel. Well, that's <laughs> a very strange custom to us today. But the Sadducees use it as part of their trick question trying to trap Jesus. What if the first man married the widow and died without children, and then the same thing happened to his brothers, number two, three, four, five, six, and seven? Then in the resurrection, which you seem to believe in, Jesus, but we don't, exactly whose wife will she be? I mean, each of the seven at some point had her as wife. Gotcha, Jesus. Check. <laughs> if a woman was married to seven brothers in this life, who will she be married to in the resurrection? Right? You just have to admit, don't you, Jesus, that belief in the resurrection does not make sense. I mean, 
multiple husband-wife relationships show that the resurrection is preposterous. But, as we've seen before, there is no tricking Jesus. <laughs> he explains that life in this age is not like life in the age to come. In this age, yeah, people marry and are given in marriage, but in the age to come, which only some will attain to, notice, after the resurrection of the dead, people will not be married or, or given in marriage. Uh, uh, unlike your far-fetched example of, of the seven brothers, Jesus says, those who are God's children, the, the sons of the resurrection, uh, they're equal to angels in the sense of not being able to die anymore, but living on forever. Anyway, I guess the, the, the answer to whose wife will she be is none of them, right? Because human love and fellowship will take a, a new, even better form in God's family in the age to come. And since the Sadducees, they themselves put extra weight on the Pentateuch as their main authority, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, and since they had cited Moses in their example, then Jesus says he uses from the first five books of the, the Bible and Moses' example that even Moses shows that the dead are raised. You think about the passage in Exodus 3, when Moses first encounters God at the burning bush. And the Lord says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died several centuries before Moses' encounter with God at the bush. They were long gone. So if these men had not been raised from the dead, and they no longer existed, how could Yahweh be their God? No, the Lord is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Only living people can have God, can have a God in the present tense, right? I am. So Moses, whom you cited earlier, Sadducees, he shows you that the dead are raised, that, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob live on to the Lord checkmate. And in fact, some of the scribes admit, teacher, you've spoken well. The Sadducees were silenced. They no longer dared to ask Jesus any questions. False religion in the first century and false religion in the 21st century denies that there is a resurrection from the dead. But true religion in the first century and true religion in the 21st century affirms that God is God of the living, and that includes those who live on in the afterlife, those who have been raised from the dead. Belief in the resurrection of the dead, then, is a key part of true religion. And that takes us from silencing Sadducees to Davidic dilemma in verses 41 to 44. We know that multiple groups have been trying to trap Jesus with their loaded questions. And now he kind of turns the table by asking them, uh, the Pharisees, according to Matthew twenty-two forty-one, how can they, that is the scribes, according to Mark twelve thirty-five, how can the scribes say that the Christ is David's son? After all, David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my... David's Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In this messianic verse, Psalm 110, verse 1, in the Old Testament, it is the Old Testament verse that is quoted more than any other in the entire New Testament. And Jesus' point here is that the Lord God of Israel told David's Lord, the Messiah, to sit at God's right hand, which is the place of honor, until God made the Messiah's enemies his footstool. So, since David calls the Messiah his Lord, how can the Messiah be only David's son? The Messiah must be much more than just David's son because David calls the Messiah his Lord, someone above David. Now, most Jews then at that time rightly understood that the Messiah would be a physical descendant or son of David. But many wrongly thought that he would be just a great human, a, a political military deliverer of some sort. And Jesus is prompting them to consider what the scriptures suggest, that the Messiah, or Christ, would not only be David's son, his descendant, but also David's Lord, the one who is far greater than David. And I don't think Jesus is just trying to beat these people at a game of, of stump the teacher or, or win points in a debate. He was reaching out, I believe, to everyone within his hearing to consider the key question of who the Messiah was and who he was. The Davidic dilemma was how the Messiah could be David's son and David's Lord at the same time. The Davidic dilemma, of course, is resolved, we know, because Jesus is the Messiah. He was both David's human descendant, his son, born in the line of David, and he was David's divine Lord in the same person. Now, Jesus' hearers may not grasp his divine and human nature right then on the spot, but Jesus, I believe, is sowing seeds for them to consider. If even Israel's greatest king, David, called the Messiah his Lord, then shouldn't he be your Lord as well, you listening to me? Maybe you need to expand your understanding of the Messiah. And you sure don't want to be the Messiah's enemies who are subjected to him as a footstool. You see, false religion believes the Messiah is a mere man. But true religion embraces Jesus, the, the Christ, the Messiah, as the everlasting Lord. Belief then in Jesus' humanity and his deity is a key part of true religion. Then Jesus shifts from posing the Davidic dilemma to warning about spiritual show-offs. He's still in the temple. He's concluded his debate, his dialogues with Jerusalem's spiritual leaders. And Jesus says to his disciples, but also in the hearing of all the people, beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes. So exactly who were these scribes that Jesus was warning of? Well, they were teachers of the Torah. They were those who interpreted and instructed others in the Mosaic law and in the oral traditions surrounding that law. If you look through the 15 references in the Gospel of Luke to scribes, you'll see 
it's not a pretty picture. It's not. They are constantly, consistently hostile toward Jesus. Think about it. In chapter 5, the scribes accuse Jesus of blasphemy because he's forgiving sins. In chapter 5, and again in chapter 15, the scribes grumble because Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. In chapter 9, Jesus foretells how he will suffer many things. He'll be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and he's going to be killed and on the third day be raised. More recently, in chapter 19, the scribes were seeking to destroy Jesus. In chapter 20, the scribes challenged Jesus' authority, and they, they wanted to lay their hands on him right then and there. So the scribes had constant, and it seems like ever-escalating, conflict with Jesus. And they were spiritual show-offs. I mean, notice what they liked and what they loved. That tells you a lot about a person. Number one, they liked to walk around in long robes. They, they sought public recognition by means of their clothing that made them stand out from everyone else. They liked that. Secondly, they loved greetings in the marketplace. Sources tell us that everyone except a tradesman who was at work was expected in the presence of a scribe to rise up and to greet them with a respectful title like rabbi or master or teacher. They loved that. Thirdly, they loved the best seats in the synagogue. I mean, those VIP spots, loved sitting there. Fourthly, they loved the places of honor at feasts. Why? Because it, it showed that they had high social status, that, that they ranked above others. Love those special spots at the feasts. But in Matthew 23, kind of an expanded version of what we have here in Luke, six times Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites. People who, they wear a mask. They're play actors. They, they look super spiritual on the outside, but on the inside, their hearts were far from God. In Matthew 23, Jesus says that they clean the outside of the cup, cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Full of greed. That we see their true colors in the way that they devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. John Calvin suggested that the scribes kind of fleeced widows by praying for hire. That is, he put it together, he thought they devoured widows' houses by renting out their services for lengthy prayers. Others suggest that when the scribes gave widows financial counsel, they ended up taking a chunk for themselves. Or maybe when they served as executors of widows' estates, they made sure that they were beneficiaries. But we don't know for sure one way or another they were using religion for personal financial gain. What a contrast with James 1.27, which tells us that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, to help widows, not to exploit them and devour their houses. So we understand why such people will receive the greater condemnation. It is deserved. False religion, then, is concerned with what people think, trying to 
impress people with our religiosity, being spiritual show-offs. But true religion is concerned about what God thinks. False religion is concerned about what people think, being spiritual show-offs. True religion is concerned with what God thinks. Lastly, we move from spiritual show-offs to selfless sacrifice. There in the temple, still in the temple, Jesus looked opposite the treasury and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, which may have been one of a dozen, dozen or so collection chests there in the temple. Mark 12:41 adds the detail that many rich people put in large sums, which were probably accompanied by like loud clanking when the, the coins were dropped in. But Jesus notices a poor widow who put in two little copper coins, two lepta, the, the smallest coin in circulation and use at that time. And we might wonder, boy, she's down to two copper coins. Have, have the scribes devoured the rest of her savings? We don't know. But anyway, the two coins together in total would have been worth about 1 64th of a laborer's wages for a day. Now that calculates out to maybe what a person might earn for 8 to 10 minutes of work, maybe a couple of dollars in today's money. And we're not told how Jesus knew that the woman was poor, or how he knew that she was a widow, or how he knew that she had put in the offering box all that she had to live on. But Jesus knew, he knew, he knew that what looked like next to nothing, two little copper coins, was actually everything. What looked like next to nothing was actually everything. And as Jesus sized up the situation, he told his disciples that truly, this poor widow has put in more than all the rest. Because those rich people all contributed out of their abundance. They had tons of leftover. But this widow, out of her poverty, had put in all she had to live on. To Jesus, then, it was not the size of the gift, but the selfless sacrifice that mattered. In true religion, we quietly give our all. Not to earn our salvation, but out of gratitude for God's gift of salvation through Jesus. In true religion, like this poor widow, we quietly give our all, and God sees it. Well, once more, there are lots of possible applications. Uh, if we look at the four major sections this week, consider these four applications in closing. Number one, when our reason tells us something is improbable, it's really unlikely, like people rising from the dead, but God's word clearly teaches it, believe God. When our reason says something is improbable, like the resurrection of the dead, but God's word teaches it clearly, believe God. Secondly, thank God for bringing salvation through the Messiah, who was not just David's descendant, but also David's Lord. We thank God for his plan of sending the Messiah and rescuing us through this one who was a descendant of David, but also David's Lord. Thirdly, don't be concerned about what people think and try to impress them with your religion. Instead, be concerned with what God thinks. Don't be concerned with what people think and try to impress them with your piety or religion. Instead, 
be concerned with what God thinks. He sees the heart. Fourthly and finally, rest assured that God sees our selfless sacrifices. No one else may have noticed this widow and her two little copper coins, but rest assured that God sees our selfless sacrifices. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have much to thank you for. Uh, we thank you for your word that helps us distinguish true religion from false religion. Uh, we thank you also for your Son and for your Spirit who lead us into the ways of your truth. We thank you that this age is not just the prelude to an, that, this, that this age is just the prelude. It's just, it's just the beginnings of what's to come, the age to come, when your people will never die again. And we thank you for your marvelous plan of salvation, that through your anointed one, through the Messiah, you bring salvation to your people. And we thank you also that what really matters most is not what people think and impressing them. It, it's what you think, Lord. You see the heart. And we thank you for the example of this poor but exceedingly generous widow who inspires us to make selfless sacrifices too. Thank you, Father, for this and for so much more through Jesus. Amen.